At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today's episode, obviously I say this a lot, but a very special guest is going to be joining us here, Dr. Jay Shaw, the Chief Medical Officer of Actia. Actia is working on creating a patient-driven approach to the most common chronic disease in the world, hypertension. Obviously, as Americans, hypertension and heart disease is something that most of us actually live with, but nobody really likes to talk about it. Dr. Shaw, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. I want to start by coming out of a recent pandemic that, you know, was a horrible disease, horrible virus, yet that got so much attention and such a huge response to it. And a lot of Americans were impacted by it. But, you know, with your work, Actia, and then professionally going to medical schools, internal medicine, all the way up and doing some amazing things, focusing on hypertension to me and heart disease in my world, it's like we don't really talk about that. We just really accept it when people are overweight and diabetic, all this kind of stuff that leads from these problems. Give us your story. Give us your take on Actia and where you fit in in the hypertension battle. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am uh, I totally understand it. I'm a practicing cardiologist, so I've practiced cardiology for 12 years or so. And so all along the way, I mean, that was my job was to manage, to diagnose, treat, manage people who have had some event when they had a heart attack, when they had a stroke, when they had some heart problem. And um, they would almost always come to me after their initial visit, procedure, surgery, hospitalization, whatever, whatever it was. Um, and they would almost always come back and say, Doc, you know, why did I, why, how did I, how did I get this? How did this happen? You know, I tried to eat healthy. I tried to do the right things, but how did this happen? And it was always an interesting conversation. There's never any one thing usually that leads to cardiovascular disease, but there are some very prominent, you know, underlying risk factors of which hypertension or high blood pressure is the most common. And the statistics are pretty staggering. 1.4 billion people in the world have hypertension, 130 million U.S. adults. This is one in two adults over the age of 65. Um, and so that the answer was, well, this was a problem. What led up to their event, heart attack, stroke, almost always was underpinned by this disease or a set of chronic diseases like hypertension that had been going on for decades before. And that started when they were in their 30s or 40s of life. 
And that was silent, doesn't cause any symptoms. It's relatively underdiagnosed because you don't have any symptoms that prompts you to go into a physician's office. And that is the time, those 10, 15, 20, 30 years of underdiagnosis and less aggressive management is the time that hypertension does its damage that then eventually leads to some overt event like a heart attack or stroke or kidney failure or kidney disease or aneurysms or many other things. And so really how I got interested in this is, well, after doing this for over a decade, kind of treating the end result most of the time, and it's great that we have these technologies and people and specialties to do it, but I really started getting interested, well, how can I make an impact on a larger scale, you know, sort of at the beginning of the spectrum or sort of preventing the progression of these diseases? And that's really how I got interested in Actia, and that's what really we are focused on as a company. Again, it fascinates me that, you know, you talk about this lead up time, right? Like these things took place and it's never like a one one event where you point to and be like, that was it. That's when your hypertension just right up there. In your professional opinion, is this something where, you know, as a patient, like it's easy to lose sight of this or is this kind of like that slow boil, kind of a frog in a pot mindset? And, and I guess I, I'm getting to the thing of like, well, how do we fix that before it becomes a big problem? Yeah, that's a very big question. And I don't know that I have all the answers to it because some involve policy, some involve large structural changes of how healthcare is built even. But in the context of the healthcare system as it exists today, one of the cardinal sort of features of blood pressure and this sort of um, concept of blood pressure as it has existed for decades is that we take a blood pressure measurement at one point in time. One episodic reading, usually with a cuff. Everyone's sort of familiar with the blood pressure cuff. It's been around for 60 years. The technology's been around for 110. It's not evolved at all. It's just the same thing. And it works perfectly well for one episodic reading. But sort of the underlying crux of the problem is that blood pressure changes and fluctuates throughout the day, week, month, over long periods of time. So that one snapshot or episodic reading is not really reflective of your overall trend and pattern of blood pressure, but that's what matters in blood pressure. It's that it is what is your overall trend, how much within an optimal range or outside an optimal range is your blood pressure over a long period of time, months, years, decades. That's what matters. And so it's sort of a mismatch of the tool that we primarily use to assess blood pressure, the cough reading, and the way that blood pressure physiologically actually causes damage and disease. And so the underlying technology of our company has really created a way to passively, automatically, and sort of seamlessly give people a tool to be able to monitor their blood pressure, assess it, and even optimize it over long periods of time. And I want to learn more about Actia and hear it from you. But in my mind, you know, coming from the direct care world, there's a lot of physicians who are sitting there saying, well, I will monitor somebody who's at risk, you know, every single month. But people who are in the traditional world, you know, say like, well, I'm lucky if I get a patient who comes to see me once a year, what the hell am I supposed to do? Correct. And that's what I was getting at with sort of the, the underlying structural issues with the traditional healthcare model. The rails are and the alignment of values, the reimbursement, everything is tied to reactive approach. When something happens, when disease occurs, when somebody has a heart attack, 
We've got great treatments, people, specialties, tons of resources for the large majority of us. But that's only after the disease has occurred. You know, and you, all you have to do is look at the overall healthcare spend. I mean, 75% of overall healthcare spend is on reacting to some event of chronic disease. 3% of healthcare spend is on prevention. So the sort of direct care model is highly suitable for this sort of longitudinal, proactive, you know, individualized, precise uh, recommendations to really try to prevent and optimize health over the long term. We cannot probably, you know, there's no 100% prevention, but the, all we can really seek to do is optimize somebody's health in the way that we can with the tools that we have over a long period of time. That's where the traditional healthcare model really doesn't, is not suited for that, but a sort of a longitudinal relationship with a direct care provider, that, that would be highly, highly suitable. Let's go there. Um, you kind of beat me there, and, and by no means was I leading the witness on any of these type of you know conversation. It's it's what's fun about these conversations is I get to be a tourist on my own show a lot of times and and enhance my you know uh, learning. And I tend to be curious about this stuff, right? There's a ton of business uh, uh, applications with it, but you know, getting to meet smart people doing innovative things. So, how does Actia and how does your work? How does that benefit somebody who is practicing direct care? How does that enable them to take better care of their people? Yeah. So what the what our company has really done is that we've created essentially a continuous blood pressure monitor. You know, we most people have heard of continuous glucose monitors, where instead of doing a finger stick check for diabetes, for example, you wear this device and it kind of gives you overall multiple measurements a day of glucose. Well, the idea is the same with Actia although applied to blood pressure rather than diabetes. And it's the combination of a simple device that looks like this, just a bracelet that you wear using optical sensors. And we take optical signals from the skin and convert that to blood pressure measurements. And we have validation data and we are, you know, have a lot of studies and research behind that. And we do this and you just have to do is wear it. That's it. And you don't have to think about what position you're in. You don't have to think about what time. You don't have to push a button. It sort of automates the entire process of blood pressure measurement. Again, drastically different than using a traditional cuff. And on the, over the course of 24 hours, we get maybe 25 to 35 readings a day, about 200 a week, about 800 a month. So we can really see over a long period of time that person's sort of unique pattern, trends, how much are they in the optimal range, how much are they outside the optimal range. And then we can start to look at how interventions, diet, exercise, lifestyle, medications, alcohol, impact that particular person's pattern and how successful those are those interventions being. So to answer your question, in the model that you kind of spoke of and from a provider standpoint, if you're really looking to get a significant amount of data that's presented to both the patient themselves, empowering them to have the knowledge of their own data as well as the provider's remotely and automatically, that's what our platform does. And we do it around blood pressure and really for with the specific use of hypertension. Now, you definitely, you held that up. So anybody listening, I encourage you to go visit our YouTube page so you can see the visual of it. Yeah, it's like a little sport brace, uh, uh, sport like watch band. And uh, so so I'm curious, and because I'm looking at that thinking, well, Apple Watches have been trying to do this thing for a long, long time. What sets your technology apart from any other type of common smartwatch wearable that promises you to do everything uh, just through your wrist? Yeah. So in this, there's not much. It's just 
standard high quality optical chipsets, LED lights, and optical sensors, similar to any sort of high quality smart quote unquote watch or wearable device. The real you know, IP and the real sort of innovation that exists has been our founders have been working on this for 20 years in Switzerland. They're Swiss and um, at, a, at a place called CSEM. And over that time, they've really been the pioneers of deriving physiologic parameters from optical signals. So they did the first work on using optical signals to, to measure heart rate. And after that, it took them on this sort of long and almost two-decade journey to get to the point where our algorithms, which are the real IP, which live in the cloud, are able to take those signals and deliver back accurate and validated blood pressure. I think there's a lot of reasons that sort of the consumer electronics companies all have explored this, you know, at reasonable length. But I think there's a lot of reasons underpinning the, that why our founders were successful at this where and, you know, very few, if, if no other organizations um, have been. So, I mean, we could go into detail there, but really there's a lot of underlying reasons for that. And it came mostly from having the time and resources at this, you know, institute called CSEM in Switzerland to really explore it in animal models and then human physiologic models to really find the underlying signals hidden in those optical signals and understand how to use them and look at them in a different way than really anyone else has. So you mentioned accuracy. You know, how accurate is it compared to the old school cuff? Yeah. So accuracy is, a, obviously, it's a common question. We publish all our accuracy and validation data. It's on our website. But I think what most people probably need a little bit of a primer on is how our cuffs measured just to give a you know, reasonable comparison. So the first thing to say is that cuffs are only validated in one body position, one and only one body position and environment. So typical cuff validation protocol, which is you know, governed by an international standard, is when you're seated, relaxed, your back is against the chair, your feet are against the floor, your arm is, arms are at heart level. You've sat there for five minutes resting. You have not spoken. No one has spoken to you. You have an empty bladder. You have no clothing on your arm. You have not eaten anything for 30 minutes. You have not drank alcohol. You have not drank caffeine. You have not exercised. You have no kids running around. You are not working. All these things need to be present to do a validation on a cuff. So that is the environment, the only one where any cuff has been validated. So they are not validated for standing, lying down, sitting in a meeting, when you have children, you know, all these things. So that is the st existing standard for cuffs. In that same body position and environment, we have published data that our device is as accurate as a cuff within the same standards and meets the international standards. What additionally we have shown is that we, we take measurements when you're standing, when you're lying down, when you're you know, in a meeting, different times of the day, when you're sleeping, when you're awake. And we have validation data at every single one of those positions where we take measurements. And so we have the most extensive you know, sort of validation data set and, and we publish everything. We're very open about it. And additionally, those are only one point in time measurements. That's another sort of thing to understand about how cuffs have always been validated. It's just one point in time, one measurement. But the reality is blood pressure doesn't exist only at that one point in time. And it certainly doesn't exist at the, in this sort of highly controlled environment. What we're really interested in is what is your blood pressure doing when you're at work, when you're sleeping, when you're you know, stressed, when you're angry at all times of the day, over weeks, months, years. And so the one point in time measurement, we have the data and it's important, but we also have this ability to look at that data over time. 
which is even more important, I would argue, than the one point in time measurements. I appreciate you going into that because I'm sitting here smiling and laughing behind the camera. And just like, gosh, that makes a lot of sense that you did go see the little um, blood pressure cuffs anytime you walk into a pharmacy. And it's kind of fun. I love playing with them as a kid. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're right. I know the exact position. I can visualize it in my head of what you're talking about. And, and any, you know, any physician or clinical person out there can say, yeah, hop up on the exam table. Let me take your blood pressure and, and away we go. But it seems very obvious now, uh, once you say that, that oh, there are a lot of variations in, in the readings or their positions or, did that was that person late and had to run down the exam, you know, the the hallway and hop up on the table there. So, you know, we're we're gonna go from measuring this and and over time and and you went into depth about that on the physician side of it. And I think this is where a lot of these type of technologies get held up, uh, especially in our world where they're like, look, you know, somebody in a traditional model with the insurance dominated model is saying, I don't have enough time to even answer questions in an exam room if I take digital you know, health technology and my patients are expecting me to monitor this and, and review it, there's no way in hell that I would ever go home. So on the physician side of it, how does that workflow look like if they're getting constant data coming in from their patients? Yeah, it's a common worry. I mean, I'm a, I'm a clinician myself. And sure. so I know for sure that would be a disaster if anyone proposed that sort of model to me. And so I think there's a couple different models that uh, workflows that work. And as we have worked with multiple clinics kind of and, and organizations throughout the world, it kind of depends on their specific model of practice. But probably like to, to apply it to the traditional healthcare model, let's say in the U.S. insurance based and, and the most realistic application, you know, uses the primary uh, disadvantage of hypertension in, uh, in that it's a problem of scale. It's so prevalent and so widespread that the current model, as we've both talked about, is really not suited, even if somebody wanted to do it, even if their incentives were aligned, the scale problem of hypertension is so massive that really individual providers working with individual patients on a one-on-one basis would not likely be able to actually manage their entire panels on a routine basis. So the only realistic way in the I think in the kind of traditional U.S. model of care is to kind of set up scalable remote monitoring platforms where one or a small group of providers potentially supervise some clinical pharmacists and nurse practitioners or PAs or even nurses. And then utilizing this technology and data flow, there is a protocol driven sort of uh, titration or monitoring program that enables a small group of providers to actually provide care to many thousands of patients. So it takes advantage of the technology to scale our process. And hypertension lends itself quite well to sort of a protocol-driven treatment. I mean, that's what's in the guidelines at the American Heart Association, ACCHA, hypertension. It's a very protocol-driven sort of simplistic treatment protocol. It's not super complicated. So, And it's been done before. It's been done like this before. There are organizations that have put resources behind it even without our innovative technology and have had good success in large-scale hypertension control. So that's the model I would see being used in traditional healthcare systems. When we go into sort of the direct care model of practice, what we have experienced is that because of the smaller number of patient panels and the sort of more more ability to pay more attention and to have more in-depth conversations and understanding of patients, that's where we still see that individual 
physician dealing with their panel of a few hundred or less than a hundred patients. And so they're really looking on a one-on-one basis still. And that data flow coming into them isn't flooding their inbox. The way we've designed our software platform is that we deliver the data to physicians in a fairly concise way. Yes, if they want to see all thousand raw detailed data points, they can see it. But the headline bullet points, so to speak, are average blood pressure values over the last week, time in target range, which we know is a highly predictive marker of blood pressure, in very concise ways. So they can quickly look at it, glean what they need to, and take those insights and go forward with their patients and, and talk to them to decide what to do next. Yeah, and I love I love that you're speaking to the direct care audience because a lot of our a lot of our listeners are just like well, yeah, you know, this topic is great. Like this technology is amazing, but how does this affect me? Because so many things are built and catered towards that insurance model out there. Quick question, you know, before a commercial break here. Um, So who's your typical customer? What kind of price point are you looking at? So uh, right now we have regulatory approval in the EU and UK, and we are looking to bring it to the US within the next 12 to 18 months. And we have two sort of channels of business. First is direct-to-patient, direct-to-consumer. Blood pressure products are generally not prescription-based, and so like every other type of product, you can buy directly, a patient or person can buy directly from us through our website, and that's at about a little, depending on the currency conversion, about 215 U.S. dollars. And that's a one-time payment. That's it. You get all the software forever. You get the app. You get the device. You get everything else that comes with it. On the enterprise side, so for for direct practices, it's a different pricing model because there's a lot of software and sort of support that goes into it. Um, But on the direct patient side, that's the general price. I appreciate you sharing that. Again, I encourage everybody to go visit our YouTube page and and check it out because it, it's a it's a very sleek, very stylish uh, wearable that's not bulky and not big, and probably get some compliments when you're out there wearing it around. Most of our a lot of our customers say that. that's true. They, they get a lot of compliments actually. Dr. Chow, we're going to pause real quick. Hear from our sponsor, Freedom Doc. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified consumer brand that will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients, Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts, Freedom Doc, Accessible Concierge Healthcare. Here, once again, with Dr. Jay Shah, the Chief Medical Officer of Actia. Dr. Shah, before the quick commercial break, we focused a lot on what Actia is doing and how they're bringing this technology from a, a, a blood pressure monitoring stance and really combating and, and I, I would say really raising awareness of hypertension and giving people, patients, the tools to understand where they lie in that hypertension, you know, world that affects half of Americans and, you know, billions of people across the world, but really liberalizing the data so that they can make, you know, decisions and show that, hey, this isn't just a one time reading from a blood pressure cuff and and continue to go forward there. I want to dig in a little bit into your background. You know, what really inspired you to go into medicine in the first place? Well, I mean, I would say probably like most of us that have gone into medicine made that decision fairly early on in life. You know, I, it's probably the common things. I had one physician in the family that I kind of 
looked up to and looked at as an example and uh, sort of imagined that that style of practice and that type of relationship with patients would be really enjoyable and fulfilling. I really did enjoy science and biology and anatomy and those sort of subjects. So uh, I think it kind of spoke to me in multiple levels, both, you know, from an intellectual level as well as a sort of a personal engagement and fulfillment level. And so that's really what prompted me to go into medicine. But again, making that decision fairly early in I'm curious, um, when you talk about if you had a family member who was a physician, uh, were they an independent practice or were they employed? They were an independent practice, staunchly an independent practice, and never wanted to be employed, never did um, accept an employment. Okay, so a little, so I had no idea what the answer was to that question, but I had a, I had an idea that you were going to say that because looking at your background, I mean, you follow a very entrepreneurial path that is very unlike a lot of physicians out there who go to work for the hospital. And that's just what I thought doctors did. So walk us through your mindset of, all right, I got my, uh, you know, I, I became a physician, I started practicing, but then obviously your attention got called elsewhere and you decided to follow some passions that weren't directly clinical, I, I guess, in nature, just seeing patients all day. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought, when I went to medical school and I came out, even after coming out of medical school, I thought that's, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a clinician full time for the rest of my career, just see a lot of patients, build a practice, enjoy it. Um, now I did my residency at, at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and it really opened my eyes to the number of different ways to utilize a medical degree and experience because the colleagues in my program in the residency program were so doing things so dramatically different than I had ever really experienced or thought of before. I mean, some of them were, had come to Boston after running an NGO in Africa for the WHO for five years. Another one was a scientist who had developed a molecule that sold it to the government of Singapore. And the next one was going into McKinsey for consulting. And they already knew that. And then the next one was going to a White House fellowship and wanted to do a lot of policy work. So it really sort of opened my eyes to sort of the many, many possibilities. Now, they were more employment models. And I, I was the sort of a, an odd duck sitting there saying I would want to do clinical medicine, actually. Got some weird looks. But so it opened my eyes, at least, and, and really started th- making me think, OK, what are maybe there are other possibilities. Then I did my fellowship at Washington University, which is a great place, a huge clinical powerhouse, and really was a great place to just really know how to take great care of patients. And, and that's what I learned there. And then when I was looking for uh, my first job, it was a tough time, actually. It was just after the Great Recession. The Affordable Care Act had not gone into effect. So no hospital systems were hiring. Not many physicians were retiring because their 401ks and all that retirement stuff had still yet to recover. So it was really tough to find a job, actually, uh, for a cardiologist in a metropolitan area. I didn't really want to go out into very rural places. And so I found one, but it was a unique opportunity because it was an ability to essentially start my own practice and be kind of tied to the academic university, but really not employed by them. So I went down right out of fellowship and started my own practice from scratch. And, And starting a cardiology practice in a metropolitan area is not necessarily like the most thing most fellows come out of training wanting to do. And honestly, I didn't necessarily probably have the the knowledge of what I was getting into, but I loved it. 
I loved every minute of that first five years was fantastic because not only did I really get the most and deepest clinical experience possible because in practice where you're not in some major academic center, you're the backstop for everything. So you see everything. I was rounding in the hospital. I was on call every day. I was seeing patients in the office. And at the same time, I was setting up the business. I was making purchasing agreements for heavy, you know, large equipment, uh, doing real estate transactions, understanding how to hire, manage, fire, um, write protocols, get the you know ultrasound uh, lab accredited, and all these things that were even down to like par levels of IV tubing. You know, I was managing this stuff, and so it was an immensely educational and really fun sort of five years of of setting up that business and practice and and growing it, and it was actually very successful um and we did we did really well and and then so that was my first sort of foray into sort of medical business entrepreneurial and then at the same time after about five to six years i started doing some sort of advisory and consulting work for medical businesses mostly around cardiology but also some in sort of just healthcare general space so again i started dabbling in other things outside of of traditional clinical care. And then I had this opportunity after seven years, we had an opportunity to, to work at Mayo Clinic. So we decided to take it. And boy, it couldn't have been different, <laughs> more different than what I had been doing for seven years or running my own practice. I had my own shop. I was just, you know, master of my own domain. And then I went to probably the biggest, most sort of legacy, very high quality, but very structured and corporate environment of, of, of the clinic. Great for certain things, but it really uh, too, there was a significant adjustment that I had to make. Where it, you know I had to realize where I really you know I was a small piece, very small piece of a very big puzzle. And so I did it, and I, I really enjoyed my time there. Honestly, I enjoyed the sort of the depth and the specialty uh, um, sort of niche area that I was able to focus on, which was thoracic aortic aneurysm disease. But and built a, a nice clinic in that area. And it was actually quite fun. But I knew that for the long term, that environment really didn't fit with my personality and, or sort of entrepreneurial or spirit. And by then, and now this is 12 years into practice, where I was doing full-time practice, I was looking for a, a different way to apply my knowledge and skills. And so that started me on a sort of exploration pathway where I interviewed probably 100 plus physicians doing different things in different industries and I finally found uh, a startup. It ended up being a, a relatively small the Swiss startup, Actia. And they were looking for a chief medical officer who knew a lot about cardiology and high blood pressure. And so it fit in that way. And that's really what my journey was to get to Actia. And I, I have absolutely loved my time at Actia. And I've learned just an incredible amount in a very short period of time. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. And, and uh, I love following people's journeys as they experience something. And, um, you know, I, I kudos to you because it sounds like you identified really what you want and really what fills your cup and makes you happy early on. Uh, even going back to a hospital setting and just like reaffirming yeah. that is, is really what I got out of that. It's like, oh, wow, hey, we're doing a lot of great stuff here, but and maybe this isn't uh, my cup of tea that, you know, you're still active in the clinical world, but there's something else. You have an ability to impact people to make better decisions, to educate themselves more in this type of a technology setting or an entrepreneurial setting 
than you do in a clinical setting. And and that's a story that it resonates with me because I came out of undergrad right when the ACA was passing. And, you know, both my parents are physicians and they're like, I don't think we would go back and never become a doctor. Yeah. Um, so I don't <laughs> go yeah. to business school instead. And I said, okay, yeah. well, that's yeah. pretty good advice right there. So I, I can totally sympathize with what you're saying. And I think a lot of doctors and it's really the ones that we work with, you know, they understand like right away that, you know, medicine is a calling. They're going to go in there, they're going to treat people. But the way that is practiced and the environments that is practiced under, for the majority uh, of, of doctors across the U.S., isn't their cup of tea. And so those are always fun conversations to have with people who realize that, you know what, there's got to be a different way. I need another option out here. And that's the fun part about doing this. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, I think the other thing that you kind of mentioned even before we started recording is that, you know, after so many years in medicine, I mean, and so many different types of practice, you know, Mass General, Washington University, Mayo Clinic, starting my own practice, the most enjoyment I had in practicing medicine was when I was running my own practice. And I think I was, I always reflect on that. And I mean, there's a lot of difficulty in running your own practice in the traditional model. So there's complexity there, but what, what was most rewarding was the, was actually the autonomy, the ability to say that I'm going to essentially work for myself. I'm setting this up for myself and I enjoy doing the work, at least some part of it, not all, but I enjoy, you know, seeing patients and doing the work and sort of practicing it at the sort of highest level that I think is appropriate, but being able to control my own destiny. And I think that that is such a, that is a, I think physicians are at a sort of a, a watershed moment where ho- I think hopefully more and more of them, of us, will start to realize that they can control their destiny and not just accept the options that are presented. And I think that for me, that's that was a real, whenever that switch happened, and I think it happened relatively early, I think maybe because of my family member who had done, you know, run their own practice, maybe because I set up my own, that I just kind of knew that that was, at least for me, the best way to to be a physician in the United States. And that was the most sustainable long-term. And so, you know, I think hopefully we'll see um, more of an attitude of empowerment in physicians rather than, oh, this is just the deal I get and uh, I'm just going to take what I see in front of me. Amen to that. One of my last questions for you here. So take what you just said and, 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 you know, I, I guess expand on it. But, you know, imagine that you have kind of God mode powers and you're going to be like, all right, click of a button, whoosh your magic wand. I'm going to I'm going to fix healthcare in the United States. What do you do? Well, I, I think that there's a so first of all, on the on the healthcare delivery side, I think that we can see that models where physicians are at least at the levels of leadership you know, in some regard, either running the entire organization or at least on a leadership level where there's a significantly strong physician voice, I think is the most important for healthcare delivery. It's not very often, actually. Uh, And if you look at the largest health systems in the country, it's only a small minority that have physician leadership. Yeah, a lot of them are like chief medical officers, just a figurehead. It's yeah, so just a, you, you, here's your title, yeah. just sit over here in the corner and be quiet. Yeah, or they're nowhere on that. And you've got this administrative layer that's very bulky and big. So I think getting away from that model somehow, if you said I had a magic wand, I think that would be 
what I would start with. The second thing is I think the incentives of most healthcare systems are very skewed, poorly, poorly aligned. Usually, especially if there's publicly traded or if they're corporate, it's just aligned to quarterly or annual earnings. There really isn't much thought beyond that. They don't have a long-term view of healthcare. It's a short, very short term. What's what's going to affect my bonus this year, next year? How am I going to get promoted? How am I going to get my bonus? How am I going to move to the next? You know, it's a very short-term view, short-term thinking. So I think that would be another misalignment of values. Of course, the ins- entire insurance model is completely misaligned. So that would be a, another huge thing to, to attack. And I think that one of the biggest things is putting patients or consumers of healthcare in the driver's seat. And that would dramatically, if you, everyone sort of assumes that healthcare is this, is a a sort of model of capitalism. It's not at all. (laughs) It's like an oligarchy. There's no free market. And so if you applied true free market principles, and I'm not an expert in, in healthcare economics, but if you applied true health free market principles where there was transparent pricing and I could easily shop for the best insurance plan and I could easily shop for the best, you know, healthcare delivery system and I could really understand who's providing value and at what cost, which is really difficult, which is why it doesn't exist. But if that, if we could show that somehow and make it transparent, I think a lot of these values would go away. And I think that's why we see so much resistance to transparency and pricing from healthcare systems and and uh, insurance companies and PBMs. And there's a lot of just essentially kickbacks that are happening. So I think if we clarified a lot of those things for people, for consumers of healthcare, and broke down a lot of these barriers, but obviously very, very difficult to do. I think you have a lot of heads nodding uh, in agreement with that. And you know what? Uh, I'll be down. There's people doing it, right? There's people fighting the good fight. So uh, all hope is not lost. And so um, I'm going to send a letter to all of my elected officials and let them know that they should go ahead and grant you um, <laughs> a magic wand to, to fix healthcare in the U.S. And I think we've been a better place. All right. Final question. Uh, uh, having spent some time in St. Louis, you, you admit you're an avid Cardinals fan. We just basically hit the halfway point for the season who's going to win it all this year who's winning the world series in 2022 three 2024 season oh man i uh put me on the spot there it's like i i, I always have to go with the cardinals although i don't, I don't know that they're going to they do, might not make the playoffs this year. significant this year <laughs> so always that's where my heart is but I, I i would have to just sort of guess at whoever's on the top of the standings i think a lot of things could change and now I'm never going to be a Red Sox fan, even though I live outside of Boston because of my affiliation to the Cardinals. But I took my son to the, his, uh, his first game at Fenway, which was a really, really awesome experience. So I don't know. I'm gonna, I can answer your question. I don't want to piss off any of the viewers or certain <laughs> fans. But, but I will put a plug in for uh, first ball game at Fenway uh, for a child. Pretty, pretty magical. That'd be cool. One of America's great ballparks. I have not been out there yet, but it's definitely on my uh, ballpark bucket list. I will I will say that. Dr. Jay Shaw, Chief Medical Officer of Actia, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com. To catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast.
Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.